Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. So I think most of us, if we're honest, um, will admit that one time or another, we've been confused by Jesus. Um, Like in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Um, If Jesus and the Father are one, then who did Jesus go off to and pray to? Himself? Or in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Does that mean they're two separate people or that they're the same person? Or how about Jesus' divinity and his humanity? Uh, We've heard that he's both divine and human. So is that like 50-50? Or did he go from being fully God in heaven to being fully human when he was on the earth um, and then go back to being fully God when he ascended after, after the crucifixion? And what was his role in creation? What's his role now? And the atonement, like how does that work? Um, like how does Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross um, actually bring reconciliation between God and mankind? So in seminary, they make you take classes, a lot of classes, uh, but particularly classes in theology and church history. Um, What's interesting is that you discover that these very questions that I'm posing to you are the very same questions that the church struggled uh, with throughout all of its history, Particularly, particularly during the first few hundred years. And as the church tried to better understand who Jesus was, Uh, It was common for them to go from one extreme to the other. Um, The word often used for these extremes uh, historically was heresies. For example, some people couldn't understand um, how Jesus could be a divine being and be fully human. Some wanted him to be fully human but not God at all. Like they could accept him as a teacher, they could accept him as a a prophet, but not as God in the flesh. Others wanted him to be fully God, but not human at all. To them, there was something unholy about the physical, particularly human flesh, right? It's messy, right? Humans have to go to the bathroom. At least I do. I don't know about you. Right? And so, particularly in light of Greek philosophy, which tended to elevate the spiritual over the physical, um, this this came to be, right? They started to say things like, Jesus only looked human. Or that Jesus was an image sent from heaven with a message for us. Like some sort of like holographic projection. There were those who believed that Jesus was a divine being, but not God. That Jesus was an incarnated being, right? A powerful being, but he was a created being. They would say that there was a point in time when Jesus didn't exist. He was a person created by God, right? And therefore was not God. Most Christians, though, agreed that Jesus was God, 
Uh, but the difficulty was in understanding, like, exactly how does that work? How exactly is Jesus God? Some struggled with the logistics of how God and Jesus could be the same, but two separate people. Right? Like, did the Father leave heaven and then become the incarnate uh, baby Jesus? Right? And if so, um, who kept everything in existence while the baby Jesus was sleeping? And when Jesus died on the cross, who kept the universe going? Did God himself really die and suffer on the cross? And like I said, who was Jesus praying to? So it seemed like every time they came up with a, with a conclusion, then they, they had more questions to deal with. And it was in the various ecumenical church councils uh, where church leaders from around the world tried to work through these theological issues. Um, and in some cases, right, they, when they came to some sort of agreement, they began to develop creeds. Creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, these kinds of things, which summarize the things that they agreed upon. Now, in, I just touched on uh, several hundred years of church history, like just in the past few minutes. And we tend to think that these aren't still issues. And these aren't questions that people are wrestling with today, but they are. Um, in this postmodern world that we live in, uh, where there is a dissolution of absolute truth, right? Where pretty much anyone can believe anything. Uh, there are still people who believe that Jesus was just a human teacher, nothing more. There are those who believe that he came from like some kind of distant planet to teach us how to live. And of course, there are traditions out there that claim to follow Jesus uh, but don't hold to a biblical view of Jesus. And I, I don't generally like to uh, point names, point fingers, but uh, there are two, and we, we need to know, like, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Okay, the former believe that Jesus is the incarnate archangel Michael. He is not. And the latter believe that Jesus is a created being who is separate from God the Father and just one of the sons of God. So the church throughout history um, has tried to get it right, tried to come up with an accurate portrayal of who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. And every time they heard a new idea, or a new interpretation of Jesus, they just kept going back to the scriptures, which is what we should do. Go back to the scriptures, okay? And one of the places in scripture that they regularly returned to uh, when they were dealing with these controversies, these heresies, is this very passage we are looking at today from Colossians. So let's start with verses 15 and 16 again. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. 
For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So this phrase, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. First, you might ask, uh, why, why is God invisible in the first place? Well, there's a good reason why God's invisible. Uh, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God said this in Exodus 33. He said, but you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. So to see God would be like grabbing a light, like a, like a high voltage wire. Or here's another metaphor. Um, they tell you not to look directly into the sun because it might damage your eyes. Well, God is more brilliant than a billion suns. Okay, more holy, more glorious, more powerful. Right? We aren't designed to survive contact with that kind of power. So where it says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, this word image um, in the original Greek is icon, icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. So an icon is an image uh, or a likeness like the emperor's image on a coin or a child as the image of a parent. Um, this word icon is also found in 2 Corinthians 4.4, which says that Christ is the icon or the image or the exact likeness of God. It says this, they don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. So there's a similar word, karakte, uh, that speaks of Christ as the exact representation of God's substance. Uh, it appears in Hebrews 1.3. It says this, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So it is awesome to have an image of the invisible God to make visible and understandable what would otherwise be unknowable. And Christ, Jesus Christ, is that image. When Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, show us the Father, right? It's in John 14. Jesus replied, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And he goes on to say that he has spoken the Father's words and he has done the Father's works. So in other words, Jesus' life, his words, his works, represent the Father perfectly. Let's look at verse 16. It says this, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. So that phrase, uh, through him God created everything, it's very similar to the beginning of John chapter one, uh, where Jesus 
is referred to as the word or the logos of God. It says this, in the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So God created everything through Jesus and nothing was created except through him. Close your eyes for a moment. Think of something, anything. Jesus created that. Now do it again. Close your eyes, think of something else. Jesus made that too. Right? Every person, every animal, every tree, every mountain, every planet, every star, every galaxy, every black hole, every subatomic particle, every dimension, even time itself, Jesus created it all. And not only did he create everything, everything was created for him. Everything was created through him and for him. That's verse 16. So it's, a mar- it's hard to imagine, like, like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? But everything we see, everything we can think of, right, that's ever been created has been created for Jesus. And then we read in verse 17 that he holds all creation together. It says he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. So close your eyes once more and imagine something else, anything, maybe even something like really big. You know why that thing or that person doesn't stop existing? Jesus. All things were created by him and all things were created for him. Go back to the beginning of creation, right? The beginning of time itself. Jesus is there. Go to the end where all creation is heading. Jesus is there. And everything, all of it, everything is held together by him. It's mind-blowing. Let's go to verse 19. It says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. All God's fullness is in Jesus. Like everything. All of it. All power. All glory. All infinite majesty. Even those things that transcend space and time and our very understanding, all of it is in Jesus. So this can't be said of anything else in all of creation, not even the angels, right? No one in all creation except Jesus has God's fullness dwelling within them. And when we think about this, like this is where words fail us. 
Think of the most like difficult subjects you ever had to study in school. So I don't know what that is, but the word on the street is organic chemistry is hard, calculus, quantum mechanics, string theory. You had difficult subjects. I had difficult subjects. For me, uh, it was German. And not just conversational German. Uh, The class I had to take uh, was supposed to equip me to be able to translate German academic writings, enough to be able to like use them as a, as a source when you're like writing a research paper. So like they give you like pages and pages of like scholarly articles to translate, right? And this was in the late 90s. So there wasn't like Google Translate back then. You just had like a dictionary and then you sat there and you just translated. So I I dropped that class and retook it, I think, probably four or five times uh, because it was that hard. It's probably the hardest class I ever took. So as difficult as these subjects might be, imagine how more difficult it is to grasp the very nature of Jesus Christ. Throughout church history, every generation that has passed Um, has unfolded a little bit more of the mystery of Jesus, right? From Pentecost to the various councils that established the creeds and the canon of Scripture to the Great Schism to the Protestant Reformation to the Puritans to the Great Awakening to modern day. Um, We stand on the shoulders of men and women who've, in some cases, devoted their entire lives to give us the correct words to speak about the nature and about the mystery of Jesus Christ. Words such as these. Jesus is fully God. He shares God's nature with the Father and the Spirit the Holy Trinity, the three in one. Like even that word Trinity, like we, we kind of take it for granted. We just say, yeah, Trinity. Uh, that word wasn't first used until 213 AD uh, by a guy named Tertullian. So back to Jesus. Jesus has eternally existed. So we say that he is begotten of the Father, not made, because there was never a time when he didn't exist. Jesus is also fully human. God the Son took on human nature onto himself. A human being has been incorporated into who God is. Now the technical term for this is the doctrine of the, for those of us who are nerds, hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union is an attempt to explain how Jesus could be both fully God and fully man at the same time. So that there is no mixture, there is no dilution of either nature. That he is one person united forever. And because he is both fully God and fully human, uh, he brings broken fallen 
enslaved humanity back into a relationship with God through faith in his death and his resurrection. Because he is fully human, he understands our struggles. He understands our temptations. He understands how life can be very difficult. As one of us, he resisted sin and he defeated evil. How did he do that? Um, It's mind-blowing, but if Jesus is God, then God both sacrificed himself and sacrificed his own son on the cross for us. Like he took on the full power of evil and the full weight of our sin to demonstrate his love for us, right? He didn't send one of his created beings onto the cross. He endured this pain and the suffering himself. And if Jesus is God, then we can trust what he has to say about God, right? Because he is God. He isn't a created being that just leaves us guessing about the nature of who God is. He is God himself revealing himself to us. Like the nature of Jesus, like when you start really getting into it, like it's really hard to like wrap our heads around. I'm trying to understand Jesus requires abstract thinking. It requires uh, sometimes even paradoxical kinds of thinking. Like how can you hold two things that's intention that seem to contradict one another? Semantics are important, like very words that we use to describe the nature of Jesus. Here's an interesting fact. Evil and darkness and suffering are horrible but they are easier to describe than the nature of Jesus. That Jesus is the eternally existing being through whom everything was created and everything was created for. Right? Jesus, who is the perfect union of humanity and the divine, who embodies all of the fullness of God and who is supreme over everything and who is supreme over everyone. When we try to describe Jesus, like we can't come up with words that are beautiful enough. We can never accurately describe like the grandeur of the God of the universe who took on humility. He took, he embraced his love for us by becoming a human baby in a mother's arms. And we'll never have the language to fully communicate the love he felt for you as he breathed his last breath on the cross. You, not just like mankind as a like impersonal, amorphous kind of blob sea of humanity, but you, 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 right? He did it for you. He loves you that much. So let's go back and look at verse 18. It says this, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. So this says that Christ is the head of the church. Um, he is the beginning and he is supreme over all who rise from the dead, right? First in everything, meaning the church, the church now, the church eternal, He is supreme, right? Someday, 
Someday the Bible tells us that we will fall in awe of Jesus. Right? The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, as we fall down before him, we will honor him because he is supreme and he is first in everything. No human being can take that role from him. It's his. He earned it. Now, it's important for us to remember this. Um, unfortunately, it's common in churches for pastors, for priests, for elders, for leaders uh, to get a big head, um, to put ourselves or to allow others to put ourselves in a position of honor that, that is inappropriate. Jesus was talking about the scribes and the Pharisees when he said that they like to walk around in the marketplaces with flowing robes and to be greeted and given titles of honor and the most important seats at the banquets and the synagogues and to be called rabbi with these important titles. Then he said, you're not to be called rabbi for you're all brothers and you have one master, the teacher, Jesus. Right? So it's easy to fall into that trap. We forget who we are. We forget, like, there shouldn't be, like, this hierarchy kind of thing. It's like, there's us and there's Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church. We forget that Christ is supreme. He is first in everything. Sometimes we end up thinking too highly of ourselves. Um, but I tell you this, it is impossible to think too highly of Jesus. Right? You can't do it. There's not a person listening to my voice right now who is thinking too highly of Jesus. And so it's important for us to constantly strive to think more and more highly of Jesus. All right, let's look at verse 20. It says, through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So that word reconciled is powerful. It's very powerful. Um, it has to do with broken relationships. Right? It has to do with things that were meant to be together that are now blown apart. Right? The most explosive devastating power there's ever been in the whole universe other than God himself is sin. Right? Greater than any terrorist bomb that blew up a building, greater than the, the two bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, greater than the, all of the nuclear arsenal in the whole world that exists today. Right? All of that is nothing compared to what sin has done to the universe. All of the broken relationships there's ever been, all the abuse, slavery, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, terrorism, genocide, all of the wars, all of the conflicts. When you think about it, it is absolutely amazing the healing and the bringing back together work of Jesus on the cross. 
Like taking all of those particles and all of those people throughout history that have been blown apart and bringing them back together and reconciled through right relationship with God. When Adam and Eve first sinned, right, the universe itself was cursed, right, like a virus, like an infection, like an aggressively spreading cancer uh, that just spread rampantly through all space, time, and history. Romans 8.22 says this, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So the most powerful work in history, in all of history, is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we see that power in the blood. There's power in the blood of Jesus. Now, I know this can be uncomfortable talking about this, uh, but the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we have to share with those people who need it, is that it is only through Jesus' death on the cross that we can be reconciled back to God. And that God was pleased to shed the blood of his own son. So let's take... Take a look at another translation of that verse, verse 20. And God was pleased for him to make peace by sacrificing his blood on the cross so that all beings in heaven and on earth would be brought back to God. Now, I don't understand this. I absolutely believe this to be true, but I don't understand it. How can God the Father be pleased to shed the blood of his own son? How does he find pleasure in that? Most fathers would rather die themselves than see their own son die. I want to share a story uh, from the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. It says this, uh, so a Romanian pastor, Pastor Florescu, was arrested by the communist forces before the fall of communism in Romania in 1989. Uh, he was beaten and tortured to try to get him to give up the names of his church members, but he wouldn't give in. They beat him, they cut him with knives, and then they put him back in his cell. And they also forced large rats into his cell through a drain pipe. Um, so if he tried to lay down and sleep, like they would just bite him. So for two weeks, he was basically beaten, cut, and he was sleep deprived. At one point, uh, they brought in his 14-year-old son, Alexander, and they started beating him in front of his, of his father. And it was pretty clear they were going to kill him. At this point, like the pastor was so full of pain and agony and sleep deprived, um, he obviously couldn't stand watching his own son get beat to death. So he cried out to his son. He said, Alexander, 
I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating anymore. And then the son answered him. He said, Father, don't do me the injustice of making me the son of a traitor to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the communists beat him to death. It says the child died praising God. So I can understand a father like that. But a father who will do the torturing? I don't understand that. And yet this is what the scripture says. Isaiah 53.10 says this. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Here's the thing. Jesus died a horrible, painful death on the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. So there was nothing in the process that gave him joy. It was in the result that gave him joy. There was no joy or pleasure in the thing itself, either for the father or for the son, But there will forever be joy in what that one act produced in your life and in mine. God was pleased to do it. He was pleased to shed the blood of his own son. He was pleased to pour out his wrath upon him. He was pleased so that you and I could stand before him blameless and unashamed and unafraid of his coming. It means that even though we were scarlet in our sin, red, blood red in our sin, he has made us white as snow. It means that where before, because of his holiness, his absolute holiness, he couldn't even look at us Mind-blowing, right? Now, he looks upon us and he calls us his beloved. How does that happen? It happens through the power of the blood of Jesus. It is Jesus' perfect righteousness that is covering us. I want you to see one more thing before we wrap this up. Verse 16 again says this, says, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Jesus is supreme over all. Jesus rules heaven just as he rules earth. Jesus rules over the things we can't see just as he rules over the things we can see, right? There are things in the depths of the ocean and the expanse of space, right? We haven't even seen, but Jesus is Lord over those things too. There is no power anywhere that Jesus isn't supreme over. 
Everything was created through him. Everything was created for him. Abraham Kuyper was a pastor. He was a theologian, and he was the former prime minister of the Netherlands. He said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So let me personalize this for a minute. You were created by Jesus. You were created for Jesus. He loves you. And you belong to him. Your life has meaning, right? Even though we have free will, we have free choice, that that meaning isn't defined by you. It is defined by Jesus. You're not ultimately in charge of your life, and that's very good news, right? Because you were created for Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And you belong to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you are supreme. You are above all. You are the image of the invisible God. And you existed before anything was created. You are the sustainer of all things. You brought reconciliation between God and mankind through your blood on the cross. Thank you, Lord. I want to take a moment and speak to anyone who's listening who hasn't already chosen to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. If you're ready to accept this gift of salvation, if you're ready to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just pray with me silently in your heart this prayer. Jesus, thank you for making me and loving me even when I've ignored you, even when I've gone my own way. I'm sorry for my sins and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you are the resurrected son of God. I want to follow you from this day forward for the rest of my life. I accept your gift of salvation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Transform me and empower me to fulfill your call on my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.